With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Laker, lecker, hydraulica, hydroton, expanded clay pebbles, lightweight expanded clay aggregate. Whatever you call it, this is what we're talking about in today's On The Ledge podcast. I speak to listener Kimberly Black about her experiences with this substrate and share some fascinating Laker facts, including... What happens inside a Laker production kiln, how to keep your Laker clean, and what you can use it for in the houseplant world. Thank you for all your feedback on last week's Thrips episode. Oh, I've heard some horror stories, but it's great to know that you are finding Professor Kirk's advice useful in terms of controlling infestations from here on out. Just a reminder also that I'm still looking for festive questions for the festive Q&A coming up. You will need to get those to me by December the... Hurriedly scrambles for diary. Uh, (laughs) December the 6th at the latest so that I can try to answer as many as possible. I will accept poinsettia questions, but I will have a sour look on my face while I answer them. And also a reminder that the event on December the 11th, run by listener Tom Cranham, is happening at Thornbridge Hall in the Peak District in England. On December the 11th, there's still time to get tickets. They're £15 each. And the day includes a talk by James Wong and a chance to buy plants from the most excellent Grow Tropicals. All the details are in the show notes if you want to find out more. Now I'm going to hit you with some Laker facts. I covered this substrate in a little bit of detail in my A to Z of potting mix ingredients, but it's so important to so many houseplant growers now that I thought it was worth devoting a whole episode to the stuff, particularly as a follow-up to the Lechuza Pond episode, offering a different perspective perhaps from our listener Kimberly about Pond versus Laker. Now I use Laker but not pond. I mainly grow on a soil-based system. And one of the interesting things about Laker is that it has so many applications, whatever way you're growing. So there's various ways that I use Laker in my soil-based systems. 
But first, let's get it out of the way. What is Laker? What is it made of? You'll find this stuff sold under many, many, many different names. Oftentimes, it'll be sold under a brand name. I've seen it sold as Hydroton and Hydraulica, Terralite. I think Canna do a brand of Laker. And it's all effectively made out of the same stuff. That is, Laker is an acronym for Lightweight Expanded Clay Aggregate. Now, I'm going to get a bit nerdy here, but an acronym is a set of initials that you can say as a word. So Laker qualifies as an acronym. Conversely, CEC, which we'll get onto in a bit, which stands for Cation Exchange Capacity, that is not an acronym because you don't say KEC, you say CEC. So there you go, little uh, lesson there on acronyms, but let's continue. So all Laker is made out of the same stuff, clay, and that is usually strip mined from the ground close to where it is processed. We'll get into the sustainability issues surrounding that shortly. So it comes out of the ground, it's broken up into pieces, and then it heads up a conveyor belt and into what is known as a rotary kiln. I have been watching Rotary Kiln uh, Laker production videos today. Very exciting. Uh, I will post one of these in the show notes if you want to be a total geek and watch them. Basically, the raw material of the clay heads up little conveyor belts and then into a massive metal tube, basically. And these vary in terms of exactly how they work. But basically, they send the clay round and round and round and heat it up at any tremendously high temperature, at least a thousand centigrade. So very, very, very hot. And under those kind of temperatures, something happens to the clay. It expands. It kind of almost pops like popcorn. And the stuff at the other end that comes out is incredibly lightweight and airy, but it's still made of clay. Just clay that's undergone a tremendous transformation via the means of very high temperatures. Laker used for different industries is actually available in different sizes and densities. So you're talking anything from really, really tiny pieces that are smaller than perlite right up to 25 mil across, which is two and a half centimetres or an inch. So the size can really vary and the density can vary as well. It's measured in kilograms per metre cubed and you can get densities from 250 to 510. Now, if you go on the website of any Laker maker, <laughs> Laker maker, that sounds good. You should be able to find information about the size and density of their Laker. For example, I've got the safety data sheet for Westlands product Hydraulica in front of me. And the granule size is 10 to 20 millimetres. And if you read the small print, the bulk density is 280 kilograms per metres cubed. That's probably fairly standard for horticulture. The, the other thing with Laker to remember is that it's used for a lot of things other than horticulture. I'd say probably horticulture is a relatively small proportion of its overall use because it has a lot of applications in building work. It's also used for thermal insulation, for drainage and filtration. It has many different uses. So those are all things to check out in the small print of your Laker. What size are you getting and what density are you getting? Let's talk sustainability next. As I said, 
The clay for the laker is strip mined and it goes into a very, very high temperature kiln, which is sometimes coal powered. So I guess you don't need to be told that that means that in terms of carbon footprint, it's not brilliant. I haven't ever seen a breakdown, a proper breakdown of the sustainability grading of a soil or a peat-free soil versus Laker. I would love to see one, but that's not something I've got available. I guess where Laker does have a tick is that it can be reused over and over again. So hopefully if you buy a bag of Laker, it will last you a jolly long time. I have only just bought another bag. The first bag that I had, which is kind of a standard compost sack size, has lasted me about eight years. <laughs> um, and I reuse it over and over again. When bits get accidentally put into the compost heap, I literally pick them out because it's stuff that I want to keep hold of. So I have only just bought another bag, which I haven't yet opened. So it does last a really long time. So that's worth bearing in mind. If anyone does find a sustainability grading for different houseplant substrates, I would absolutely love to see it. The great thing about Laker is it doesn't degrade easily. I mean, I have stood on pieces wearing a pair of boots and managed to crush them. But unless you do that, it doesn't really degrade in the same way that soil does or any sort of soil-based mix that you might be using or indeed things like perlite and vermiculite. They can sort of degrade and get dusty over time, whereas Laker just pretty much stays as it is. So that's the plus points of it. And I would emphasise that it is worth using and reusing your Laker many, many times. Coming to the issue of how to reuse, it partly depends on what you've been using it for. I usually keep it very, very simple and just rinse it out. Now, I have been using the inside of an old salad spinner, plastic salad spinner, to rinse out my Laker. I did see the other day somebody using laundry bags, those mesh laundry bags you can get, which is actually a great idea because you can then put them in the laundry bag, rinse them out, and then on a sunny day, just lay them out on a flat surface to dry. And you've still got control of them. They're not rolling all over the place. Uh, what a good idea that is. I have never done anything more to my Laker than that. But lots of people, particularly those who are more at the hydroponics and semi-hydroponics end of things, like to be absolutely sure there's nothing in those pebbles that can cause problems for their plants. If you're washing them, you are going to get rid of a lot of the debris, the plant-based organic debris that you might get if you're using them as I do for things like a reservoir in a wick watering system or as a mulch. And that will also flush out mineral salts that may have accumulated in your pebbles. But some people want to do more. I have seen people talking about boiling them. Personally, I that's not a route I would go down. Again, a bit of a waste of energy. There are a few other ways of doing it which don't involve heating. There is in the UK a product called Citrox you can buy, which is a totally safe disinfectant that you can use on Laker and other surfaces and gravel and things like that. It's made by Agrilan. I don't know if you can buy an equivalent anywhere else in the world, but 
It's made from extracts of citrus fruits, not surprisingly given the name, and you can use it on things like bird feeders or compillary matting, that kind of thing. So it's a really, really useful product that's widely available at garden centres and also online. And that's a great way of treating your laker with a disinfectant that's natural. You can also use food grade hydrogen peroxide as a way of disinfecting them. Follow the instructions and make sure that you dilute to the right level. I will include a calculator which allows you to calculate what rate you need to do that at and make sure you obviously rinse them thoroughly afterwards. You can leave them out to dry. If you use that mesh bag technique or just get a big grow bag tray, clean grow bag tray and lay them out on a nice sunny day and they will dry and then you can store them like that. So that enables you to use them over and over again. So why is Laker good for houseplants in terms of substrate? Well, they're very lightweight, so you can buy a big bag of them and you can hump them up the stairs of your apartment quite easily. The process of heating them up introduces loads of air into each of those pebbles. They're, as I say, like popcorn and they just explode and you've got all these air pockets. And that allows water and air to be stored in the substrate. Laker has a high Cation exchange capacity, CEC. And basically, that's a way of measuring how much a growing medium can hold on to water and nutrients. And Laker's CEC is high. It doesn't hold any nutrients in itself, it doesn't contain nutrients, but it can store them until the plant needs them, which is a great quality. That's also a reason why it can accumulate mineral salts if you're watering with tap water. So that's another reason to flush out your laker every so often. So it's good for holding water and nutrients around roots, but also giving lots of air. Let me talk first about the ways that I use it. Mulches, fantastic as a mulch on the top of pots so that you're not splashing soil if you're top watering. Keeps things neat, may also have a little bit of an impact on fungus gnats. I use it also in reservoirs when I'm wick watering, so it just holds onto the water. Or if you're doing the classic pebble tray approach for increasing humidity, that's a fantastic thing to use as the pebbles because they're not very heavy and they will just sit there and hold onto the water and slowly release it as it's evaporated into the air. If you're talking hydro or semi-hydro, well, of course, then you can use it as just the complete medium. Some people use a system without any kind of drainage holes. So there's water at the bottom, which is topped up and the roots dip into that. Some people use a double pot system where you've got the laker in the main pot and a water reservoir below. And that can be something you can make yourself very cheaply or something you can buy. Pretty much any method that you want to use Laker for houseplants in terms of a substrate, you can give it a try. The other thing that is very popular is propagation in Laker. And I do have a few prop boxes where the bottom is just covered with a deep, say, five to 10 centimeter layer of Laker that's damp and maybe a little bit of moss on the top of that. And the plants can root into there. When you get the bag of Laker, see how dusty it is. I would always recommend giving it a rinse through before you use it just to remove anything that might be sitting in there that could damage your plants. That's enough from me. Now we're going to hear from Kimberly Black, my guest this week, who is talking about her personal experiences with Laker. Uh, My name is Kimberly Black. 
um, and plant enthusiast for many years. I started as an outdoor gardener um, in the Rocky Mountains, which was very challenging. And after learning a bit about growing in a challenging environment, shifted that to indoor plant keeping when we moved to a house without a big garden. Um, and so I've been experimenting ever since the last sort of year and a half or so in the new house. Fantastic. And we're here to talk about your experiences with soilless substrates, which is something we've been talking about on the show recently. I think this is an area where lots of experimentation is necessary to find what works for you. So tell me a bit about where you started with your switching to a mineral-based substrate. My first uh, trauma came with bringing home a plant with fungus gnats, a delightful, magnificent croton, and it subsequently <laughs> infected every last plant in my house. I didn't know what it was until I looked it up and realized that I had a big problem um, and went about all of the sort of recommended by people without knowledge um, information, and that didn't work out very well. Um <laughs> I Did went, they tell you to put cinnamon on the surface of the soil and all that? In fact, one, yes, diatomaceous earth, which I actually knew, you know, people use around the house for mm. insects, but wasn't sure how that would possibly work on wet soil and my suspicions it would fail. That was correct. Um, so that the frustration with fungus gnats led me to think that soil was a bit of a problem for me. And I know overwatering that that's one of the things you worry about when you have fungus gnats in your soil. And I really did try everything I could. The one thing I did not do is nematodes. And that is very difficult to come by in the United States. Um, but when I collected more and more plants, it wasn't just fungus gnats that were a problem. It was also my husband saying to me, we need to leave the house for two weeks at a time. And I need you to figure out how we're going to do that without killing all of these plants that you're purchasing. Um, and so that came into the, uh, to the equation as well as how I was going to manage this number of plants, having now a problem with fungus gnats, getting rid of those and then figuring out how to keep these lovely plants when I'm out of town for two weeks. Um, and so actually soilless media became a potential solution to more than just those two problems. But the chronic overwatering, which was probably additionally um, contributing to the fungus gnats, was another reason that I felt soilless growing may be a better choice for me. Fungus gnats, they are just so evil. I mean, it's kind of ironic because they don't do that much damage to plants, but they make up for it by being just so annoying, don't they? And people say, oh, waterless and really all of those solutions. I mean, it's a shame you can't get hold of, of the nematodes because they are very effective. And I've also used... um hypoapsis mites, which are good if, you, if you've if you got drier soil. But I agree with you that, yeah, being able to go away for two weeks and leave your plants happily, that's a big bonus in life. Uh, I can really see the benefits of that. So where did you go from there in terms of was, was a sort of DIY pond your first option or your first experiment? So I tried at the exact same time, both the LECA and the pond. I was curious and wanted to run some experiments because the information, unfortunately, coming out that I saw most of the time on pond was very much commercial and likely to be sponsored. And so I thought the information was a little bit dubious, especially stuff coming out of um, uh, the YouTube sort of space. Um, I find all of that information really questionable. Um, and so I wanted to try it without sort of the company influence, but I did read the website on Pond to get a sense of what the ingredients were, you know, the benefits that they talk about, which are sort of the ratios of air to the soil particle, substrate particles, 
pond was an interesting idea because it had fertilizer coming with it. Um, and so that was something that seemed great. The self-watering system that you can do with that also seemed great. Um, and in that way, the LECA seemed like it was more labor intensive to do as well as to learn. There was a whole lot to learn about LECA without great information. And so I ended up turning to um, marijuana growers online more than anything. I was Mm -hmm. familiar with hydroponic growing because I actually had a friend once upon a time who grew marijuana hydroponically um, and raved about the success, but it also seemed really intensive and with poor information. So mostly the internet. um, And I used some of the pawn information from the company, but tried not to be swayed too much. Um, by their commercial marketing. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? There is a real a lot of information to be learned from people who are growing cannabis because they really um, have invested in a lot of this stuff way before houseplant growers were getting interested in this stuff. In fact, I've discovered a grow shop uh, in my town the other day, which is obviously, you know, uh, is selling an enormous range of stuff for hydroponics and products. And I was just blown away at looking at all this ranks and ranks of different products and equipment that you could buy and grow tents. And it was just mind blowing. So yeah, that is definitely a good source of information because they've kind of been there, done that, bought the t-shirt on this kind of stuff, haven't they? Oh yeah. They've dedicated so much in research to trying to maximize their yields and it covers, you know, flowering as well. And so, you know, when you're using a hydroponic setup, there are recommendations to change the nutrients if you're entering a flowering phase. Um, and all of that kind of information is a little bit of information on a little table on the label on the bottle, but doesn't really help you to understand exactly what you're doing to manipulate the, the solution itself. So you had some some ideas. What were the first plants that you decided to give up on with the soil and, and switch over? Um, sadly, I'm sure there were some of my more established plants, but my not particularly valuable and easy to replace plants. I was aware of issues with rot mainly, and it was publicized much more for the LECA that especially trying to transition a plant from soil to LECA led to rot. That was one of the biggest problems. Um, And so preparing the plant to go into LECA was one of the things to research to get all of the soil off before transitioning with pond. It seemed like it was a a bit easier. You could, you know, rinse off the roots. If you had a little soil on them, it wasn't a big deal. Um, And you were able to plant into the soil or the, you know, the, the, the medium, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and tell me how it went. What what went well? What went hideously wrong? Um, I think the first thing I noticed, the, the first um, bag of LECA that I got was all of a sort of pretty large size. And so, for example, I tried transitioning a goldfish plant. That was, that did not go well at all. It wouldn't, like the, the individual um portions of the plant, I'm not sure I'm going to use the right terminology, but each one of sort of the stems of the plant, they would kind of topple over um, repeatedly within it. And so I was like, all right, well, the, obviously the size is a problem. Um, I originally tried with the pond. I was using a philodendron Prince of Orange was one of my first um, tries um, and it did nothing. It didn't rot, but it just kind of sat there miserably. Um, and when I would take it out, you know, and check the root system, there was no growth of the root system. Um, I tried a black velvet alocasia in the pond. That one actually was one of the plants that responded well to the pond. I don't particularly know why I think of alocasia as like 
the most probably fussy plants I keep, the, you know, those plus the anthuriums or, or, well, crotons. I've killed a number of crotons, but those were the plants that I thought if there's going to be a fussy one and alocasia is one that I'm not sure would appreciate that kind of substrate. So I thought that was a reasonable tempt. And I also tried a dragon scale in the pond and that poor thing, every last little hair-like root disintegrated. And it was a lovely little dragon scale. It actually was a spontaneous um, variegate that I found at the nursery nearby. There was a young man who pointed it out to me. So I was very excited about it. Happily, you know, they grow back. So I've had it come back twice. But each time I change its substrate, it gets upset with me and drops its leaves. So um, the pond did not work whatsoever for the dragon scale. It worked okay for the black velvet. Um, I had a Thermatophyllum sprucianum, formerly known as a Philodendron geldii, I believe. Um, and that one did okay in the pond. What I found out, um, I think, and part of what the company recommends is to start by using the pond substrate like a standard soil and watering it first so that the plant will establish fresh water roots and it won't rot the soil roots in there. Um, and what I found was I had to have some sort of substrate with the pond at the bottom because it just stayed too wet. And I think that was the reason for the root rot with the pond. With the LECA, if I kept a really close eye on it, I seemed to do better. There are other plants. I'm trying to think of which other ones failed. Um, oh, I had gotten a really neat mother and daughter croton. Have you ever heard of that? No. They're, oh, they're fascinating. I really fell in love with crotons, and they hate me, and I really appreciated your, I should say, Kodei and Variegatum. Um, I very much appreciated your episode on it. It brought my self-esteem up just a hair to know that I wasn't the only person <laughs> killing crotons around the well, world. Well, let me tell let me tell you the little one that I bought because I hadn't had one for a while that I bought for that episode got so miserable because it was in my front room, which is just really I mean it's south facing, but it was just too far from the window that it was too that I put it next to the window and it got burnt. Anyway, it's now out in my conservatory sunroom type thing which is to be honest where all my plants should be because they absolutely love it and it's it's put on a real spurt of growth but it's kind of changed color completely from what it was originally so yeah they're a re <laughs> they're not oh. the easiest things i'm glad that i brought you some comfort on that subject it really was the the mother and daughter croton is really neat because each one of the leaves has a little extension um of the right. midrib and at the end of it is this little baby um leaf and that it looks like this funny little Dr. Seuss croton. It's very odd. Um, I was really happy I found it and I was like, well, okay, we're going to try it. And so this transition to pond and the leaf drop was spectacular. Within 24 hours, it was just a pile on the ground and a stick in, oh. a, in a bucket, basically. It was so sad. <laughs> it was very sad. Yeah, that does sound a bit dramatic. I mean, that's the kind of thing you just absolutely dread as a, a, a plant grower is just coming down and just seeing all the leaves on the ground under the plant. More with Kimberly shortly, but now it's time for question of the week, which comes from Eliza. And we're back to thrips already, just a week after our thrips episode. Eliza has a thrips infestation in her houseplant collection, which is 200 plants in one room. So yes, I can imagine that you're freaking out, Eliza. Eliza has been using SB Plant Invigorator to spray her plants and treat them for the last few weeks and is wondering whether she can go on doing that over the winter period, whether the fact that the 
Foliar spray contains some nutrients will mean that it'll end up with her plants being over fertilized. What a good question. Well, it's interesting. SB Plant Invigorator, this spray that's very popular now in the UK for treating all kind of pests. It's a foliar spray and I use it myself. It's really great. But there isn't any information out there that I've found anyway that explains the nutrient profile of what's in the spray. So how much nitrogen, potassium and phosphorus are in there. What I would say is if you're spraying it on the leaves, and I suspect with a thrips treatment, you may well be spraying it on and then wiping it off to remove the larvae and the adult thrips, you're probably actually not leaving that much on the plants to be absorbed by them. If you're worried, you could certainly swap to using water because as we heard last week from Professor Kirk, water, a wash down with water is pretty successful as a way of controlling thrips. But I would think that any plant that you've got that isn't uh, something that's really dormant during winter, like a cactus, would be absolutely fine with having a spray of SB plant invigorator every couple of days. And the other thing you can do is just don't fertilize with anything else during this period while you're using the SB plant invigorator over winter. If you haven't listened to that episode already, Eliza, 204, do give it a listen. There's loads of biological control measures suggested in that episode. And I think with 200 plants in one room, that could work really well for you. But yeah, I don't think the plant invigorator is going to cause any problem. It's used widely in the nursery industry here. And I think as long as the plant is not in a deep dormancy, it's not going to cause any problems. Better to get that thrips problem under control than leave it over the winter. But if you're worried, as I say, just switch to water or use it a little bit less often. I think with pests, it's always the case of it's better to do something every day than one thing every now and again when you remember, because that little war of attrition you can get going, just breaking the life cycle and removing the pests at different parts of the life cycle really does help as dull and boring as it is to just keep on treating your plants. But I wish you luck, Eliza. Do let me know how you're getting on. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, drop me a line on theledgepodcast at gmail.com. And now it's time to head back to my interview about pawn, 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 pawn. So you, uh, you, you tried various things with, with pawn and lecker. It seems like the pawn you've ditched in favour of the lecker generally because it, it seems to have just worked better and suited your purposes more effectively yeah and I should I'll send you um the photo that I took of the last time I was trying to clean out the pond so I could reuse it um because that that's one of the things I appreciate also about on the ledge you talk about sustainability and I treat each one of these things as though it's not renewable because you know it, it really isn't a lot of these things are mined and so I want the pond to be reusable as well. That's mm. one of the things they tell you. But I'll send you the picture of my tweezers pulling out these tiny hair-like dead bits of root. And even the plants that live, when I repotted the Thermatophyllum sprucianum, which is one of the ones that did not object to the pond, uh, I still had live roots, but all these really healthy live roots just 
coming out in the pond. And so then to reuse it, I sit there and I pull out every last little root and it's just hours of mess. Um, the, the self, the self-watering idea of it was great, except for that I clearly didn't have whatever the routine was right to prevent rot um, with the pond. So that was another thing that just, you know, it doesn't take long killing plants before you want to change your mind on what you're doing. I liked the LECA, except for some of the problems like people will bring up. So like fine root systems seem to do a little bit better in pond because it supports them and the plants will stay up upright better. Um, but what you actually will find if you do a little more research is um, LECA comes in different sizes. You can buy the standard Ikea bag and that has sort of sizes between, I want to say it's like four millimeters to like 10. Um, and so it comes in a range of sizes. But you also, if you want to, can purchase like on eBay, um, micro LECA, which is mm. actually really rather small and you can mix and match your own LECA. So I actually use... Um, an orchid pot, the, a large one that has the round holes that are somewhere around five or six millimeters, I think. And I actually use that to sift out the LECA. So I have three different boxes. I have my little micro LECA box, and then I have sort of my sort of small mid-range LECA box, and then my larger LECA. And each plant now gets its own combination of sizes in order to make it something where it's appropriate ratio for the water to the plant, but also with stability for it. So for example, I have a, um, depending on who you ask, it's an Alocasia zebrina reticulated version, if you want to, the one with a very fancy leaf pattern, really fine root system and very top heavy as a plant goes. And so the LECA, if you use all the large um, balls will not support it well. And the plant's not going to grow. The plant's not stupid. It knows that it's not being supported properly. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's not going to get to be a full and nice lush plant. Whereas as soon as I put it into a more stable setup with more variable size LECA, um, a lot happier. And the root growth is just like it explodes in front of you as you check the pot each week. And I love that I can check the pot each week for the rot for pawn. I just watched the plant turning miserable and waited long <laughs> enough to take it out to see what was going on. Whereas the lucky, it was obvious. I could take it out immediately. It could rinse off the roots, treat any rot I wanted to just clean it up. And when it came to cleaning the LECA versus the pond, I have um, a, you know, spaghetti boiler where you have the col colander portion that sits within the larger pot. Hmm. That, does that make sense? Yes. Using, I don't yes. know if I'm using the right words. I don't cook much. My husband does. <laughs> um, so <laughs> this is how I use our pots. So I, um, I will boil the lecket in there. Any of the kind of root debris, most of it just comes off and into the water. You can rinse it very simply and reuse it. Well, with the pond, it has fertilizer in it. So you can't really boil it. I'm sure that will, you know, basically make the, the small balls of fertilizer melt or disintegrate in some way that I'm sure wouldn't be good for your plants. So not really sterilizable, if that's the word for it. And so I'm pulling out little bits of rotten roots and root hairs, very much aware that I can't actually clean this other than rinsing it. As soon as you make the pond particles wet, do they stick to everything? The LECA doesn't. It, it, you can drop the whole box over your kitchen if you want to, and you can pick it up, stick it in the boiler, sterilize it, and you know, rinse it and you're done. Um, and those kind of benefit as a surgeon, I'm really pretty focused on hygiene, um, and think it's mm -hmm. pretty important to sterilize the medium if you have a plant that's died in it. Um, and the, the LECA just really, that whole thing spoke to me. And once I was able to get more knowledge down to how to deal with the hydroponic solution, to me, there's nothing that I want to keep in pond anymore. I've, I've left a couple of them in there because they've 
happy enough. I'm not going to mess with them yet, but um, there are two. There are two left. One is the Magnificent Croton, which I put into a very specialized watering system, which is two five-gallon buckets, the inner one of which I drilled a bunch of holes in to make it into a gigantic, you know, sort of dual watering pot. Um, but do not have it in just pond. I have it with Lekka at the bottom with wicks going up through the Lekka and into the pond. And so that's sort of the system that I found. If you make it your own DIY self-watering system, did not seem to rot the roots. I'm sure the company has a pot style that will help with this, but each one of those pots that's sort of the dedicated purchase is made of plastic and they're not cheap. So I really didn't like that aspect of using the pawn. Um, I, I didn't want to have to use a bunch of dedicated pots to make it work. Yeah, I hear you. It is expensive. I mean, I've got one that probably I got from a trade show or something quite a few years ago, but I that has, I mean, and I don't even use it. I, I just have... It's got um, a fishbone cactus in it and it's in soil and I just put water into the reservoir, but I don't use it with pond. <laughs> so I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, I, I, t- I totally understand what you're saying. I too, um, uh, yeah, I don't want to spend loads of money on self-watering pots. I mean, particularly if you've got a lot of plants, that gets expensive very quickly. And I have a mental image of you in the kitchen and your husband coming home saying, oh, you're cooking something. And then you go, no, actually, I'm sterilizing my my substrate and your steaming pots of, 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 <laughs> <laughs> of that is exactly clay correct. pebbles. Yeah. That yes. sounds great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know the kitchen is for different purposes for different people i remember yeah. the tissue culture episode you're talking about and i was like all right well i think i have enough room in my kitchen i could you know my husband's <laughs> like you you have enough i have a whole propagation station in our kitchen we just happen to have this weird desk area that they had installed fluorescent light strips in in the kitchen and so i just turned the bulbs into grow light bulbs and so this whole shelf is dedicated to my propagation so i already have a station he'd like me to stick to mine but i need the stove once in a while that's i mean that's absolutely fair enough isn't it <laughs> um so i just need to picture your system now for your lecker so your plants are in regular plastic nursery pots or are they filled with lecker and then an outer pot? Yeah, the I like to reuse pots as much as I can. Um, so I actually had, I collect vintage pots, a lot of ones that are from like the 1940s and 50s because we have a mid-century modern home. And so I collect these old pots and a lot of them don't have drainage holes. Many, many don't have drainage holes. Pretty much anything made by Hager or Glidden um, do not have drainage holes. And so they act as my cash pots or cash pose, however you want to say. Um, and then for the inner pot, I have reused um, orchid pots. I find the net oh, pots yeah. for orchids really helpful, especially because of the clear plastic. You can see through those. And then I actually modify a lot of like deli containers. So at, we have an Indian takeout place, fantastic. And they have all of these clear plastic containers, which it breaks my heart to bring home any kind of plastic container that I'm going to throw immediately into the garbage. So I just started saving all of these. I will heat up a nail, like a big nail from the garage, and we'll use it to basically turn any one of those deli pots into an inner pot um, for, for orchids. So I can reuse all of those. Then the outer pots are the, um, mostly the vintage ones. And then I had some orchid pots with orchids that sadly had not made it. Um, and I actually, I've used things that were like meant to be containers to hold things like, you know, buttons and stuff like that, where it's just a, it just happens to be a clear plastic container that fits within these orchid pots. So I've gotten 
pretty good at spotting those kinds of things. My husband has little paint mixing um, buckets that he's had from Home Depot before where if you clean out all the paint and you want to put some holes in it, great, that'll work for you. So it's those, the pots that I use, I just reuse over and over again as the plants upsize. I just pick a different, bigger size, you know, orchid pot or leftover deli or paint container, and it fits inside my delightful um, vintage pots. And it also allows me to basically redecorate my plant room. I have a dedicated space in my bathroom because I don't use the jacuzzi tub because why would you? You should just have a plant room. <laughs> um, and so the humidity is high. It's really great. Um, and so in there I can, as plants are growing and I'm shifting and repotting, I can just choose a different cash pro for it and put it in a different place. So it's not only that it's the setup is easy for me, but it also kind of allows me to do a lot of variability and to switch around the pots as things are growing. That is very clear. Thank you for that. And I love the fact your your jacuzzi is a plant area. I mean, yeah, who needs a jacuzzi? So, you, and watering, how does your watering regime work? You said you can go away for two weeks and leave them. How do you uh, make sure that uh, the plants are uh, at the right water levels? So I use um, a large, a series of larger plastic bins. So they're just Ikea shoe bins, actually, for storing boots and shoes. Um, and I put, fill the bin a third full with the nutrient solution. And then based on the depth of the particular plants, then sort of cluster them in the boxes appropriately so that the water level's about a third, which is where it belongs. Um, and Putting all the plants together in there, that water does not go away quickly. It takes a really long time. And even once the reservoir of water is gone at the bottom, the LECA itself is still holding on to a lot of moisture. So 10 days to two weeks, there's still, if you look, I have the same system I use for my propagations where I have a single box and I have each one of the propagation propagates within our propagules. I learned that from you, propagules. Um, within that system. Um, and the water will last for a couple of weeks. And so I can go away for two weeks, but I also have a neighbor also happens to be a plant enthusiast. And so there was one trip that was two and a half weeks. And I said, Hey, can you just come into the house once I'll leave a bottle of distilled water there, just dump it in until it's a third full and great. And that's all he did. He said the easiest thing in the world. He walked in, he filled up the box of water, he walked back out. So even if you do, if you're gone for three or four weeks, you would only need someone to come in and empty a bottle of distilled water into a box for you, not come and try to determine, you know, with a moisture probe, which of your plants may need watering that day. Well, it sounds like a very, very easy and logical system you've got going. I mean, is there anything you miss about soil or would you say you'd never go back now? The one plant that I really, I put back in soil because it, it was miserable, um, was my dwarf Meyer lemon tree, which broke my heart because that was also the one of the two plants where the fungus gnat infestation was just awful. Um, the plant, the pot itself is a 12 inch pot. It is a big cylinder pot and the fungus gnats, I think there's just enough, um, soil for them that regardless of the treatment I was using, I was just, I was never really able to get rid of them. I was always suppressing them. And I use the um, bacillus. Oh, it's, I forget it's Israelensis, I think is the one that has the natural um, insecticide, insecticidal larvae. Um, and so that one, I was the one I had used with the most success to suppress in that plant. Um, and sure enough, you know, I put that plant back into the soil and started seeing a fungus gnat here or there again. 
<laughs> so <laughs> I'm now looking at, you know, all right, I'm suppressing it again with a bacillus and then I'm looking out ordering the nematodes, but they have to be ordered like airmail as far as I can tell from oh, Germany, really? I think was the only source I could find. Yeah. Oh. Maybe someone else has a better idea, and I really hope. <laughs> I really hope someone. Yeah, you I'll ask around. Get it. I'll ask yeah. around American listeners because I think I've heard from listeners who have got hold of that. You know, within the country, I'll see if I can dig something out for you because I think that would be a good solution. And you know, I apply a biological control twice a year. Uh, and that, that pretty, and I've got a lot, all my, basically all my plants are in soil and that does seem to do the trick. It is still a pain and they do come back, but, um, yeah, that, 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 they do work really, really well. Um, as long as you've, I mean, I'm sure being a surgeon, you would be very, um, scientific about it. So you have to just kind of <laughs> dilute them in a certain, to a certain level and make sure that, you know, every plant gets well soaked, but it does work. It does work magic actually. So that's definitely worth looking into. I'll see if I can find an American source for you. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me about these soil free options. I, I'm really fascinated to hear these stories, Kimberly, and, and find out how things are working for you. And yeah, let's hope that some other listeners are inspired. I'm still I'm still on my soil journey. I mean, I, apart from anything else, I don't really have time to do too many experiments. But what I am thinking is that maybe I might try where I'm growing things from cuttings, just starting them off in Laker, because then I don't have to do any adaptation. I can just start them off straight away and see how that goes because that might be my sort of baby steps way of getting into it. But it's really interesting to hear how you've got on and and thank you for sharing all your info. If I would, if I, I will take two more seconds of your time that the in, even with the cuttings, I think my recommendation would be to grow into LECA. A lot of times people say I propagate right into LECA. I still had rot propagating right into LECA. But what I found was if I modeled a system after a propagation box, and there was a style, I have to thank a, a guy named Tech Plant, who's a really interesting guy who does plant experiments on YouTube. But he set up a propagation box that I think was really helpful just as a system, which is the LECA for several inches at the bottom. But at the top is a couple of inches of fresh um, sphagnum with perlite mixed into the two. And so the cutting starts its initial roots into the sphagnum and then immediately will start accessing the LECA below. And then when you're ready to actually move the propagule um, into LECA solo, all you have to do is just clean off the little bit of sphagnum at the top and the plant already has roots that are used to the LECA below. Wow, that's really good. I mean, that's effectively how I propagate a lot of things anyway. Um, I, I do have prop boxes with lecker and then some sphagnum in there so yeah that sounds nice and easy well i'll, I'll let you know how i get on and, and and thanks very much for for sharing thank you it's been a pleasure i really appreciate it thank you so much to kimberly for joining me this week and as ever do check out the show notes for videos of rotary kilns and other exciting things that you might want to look at and also as i said in the intro all the details for tom cranham's event in derbyshire on december the 11th thanks for joining me this week i shall see you next friday The music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops. 
the road we used to travel when we were young by Komiku, and Overthrown by Josh Woodward. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details. (laughs) 